I like having Josh be able to do the the dirty work for me and yelling about the um, forms. All right, so today we return to our series on the Pentateuch, though there have been some breaks. We have been at it for some time now, but the end is in sight, as stated um, a few months ago when we began this series. The objective isn't to work through each of the five books verse by verse, uh, but to provide a general overview of the Pentateuch itself, tackle some of the uh, common questions that come up, major questions, and more importantly, to share some helpful principles on how to uh, both understand and apply um, not just the laws found in the Pentateuch, and there are many of them, but also the narratives, uh, which includes appreciating their purpose, you know, why they are there, and um, so on. So this morning we will continue with narratives in particular, uh, looking at um, how we can apply the principles we've learned to specific examples. We began doing this with three passages uh, commonly referred to as the wife-sister deceptions found in Genesis. You might remember that a while back. And what we saw upon a closer study of those passages is that Abraham and Isaac were not self-serving, chicken-livered dirtbags who were willing to pimp out their wives, but rather faithful protectors who incorporated a clever strategy to save themselves and their wives. And we saw how God used all that to bring about his plan for uh, the raising up of the Israelite nation. And so today we will continue with a couple other examples from the Pentateuch, and I've chosen two um, somewhat puzzling narratives, each of which took place around the time of the Great Flood. And we're not going to deal with these in great depth, um, but some depth, but not great depth. And our primary interest is to explain the different theories of what might be, of what might be going on in each of them, and then kind of just stand back and appreciate how they fit into the bigger picture, the grand scheme of God's greater plan for the human race. And then next Sunday, we'll tackle another narrative in Genesis, which may actually be the most disturbing chapter in the whole book, if not in the Pentateuch itself. And then after this, we'll switch gears, and Josh Birch will address the controversial practices of slavery and polygamy that we sometimes find in the Pentateuch, um, something that those who object to the Bible like to make a big deal about. We've talked a little bit about that in the past, but Josh will come and reinforce that again. And then in conclusion to the series, I'll come back, as I promised a while back, to the questions of observing the Sabbath, and then finally uh, the, the passage that prohibits uh, getting tattoos, which will end the series, and possibly, because that's a controversial subject, in my ministry here. Um, who knows? <laughs> all right, so the plan is to finish all this up by the end of February, but there will be some interruptions like the annual congregational meeting that is coming up and so on. But... Um, so about uh, four more sermons after today, more or less. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 6. Uh, the passage we will be looking at there um, starts in verse 1 and may actually be really the most puzzling story in all the Pentateuch, and there's been no shortage of discussion about it. Ten years ago, I spent a few minutes on this when we were working through the book of Jude, if you were... Uh, part of our church back then, and re you might remember some of that. Jude seems to refer to this passage in his short letter. And this is one of those stories where there are things about it that we know, uh, there are things about it that we think we know, and there are things about it here that, that we simply don't know. 
So let's read through it. Verses 1 through 4 are the challenging ones, but we'll continue to read to verse 8 as um, that helps to provide some historical context here. Verse 1, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind, who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Or another translation reads, they were the mighty heroes of old, the men of renown. And the term Nephilim, real quick here, uh, just um, is oftentimes translated uh, giant following the custom of, of um, the Septuagint. All right, now verses 5 through 8. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord." And then the following verse speaks about how he was declared by God to be a right, or was noted by God to be a righteous man. So as you can see, uh, this sets things up for the great flood that will then become the main subject for the next three chapters. Whatever is going on here in this passage we just read, the obvious point that the author wants us to appreciate is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil. And as a result, we are about to see something that we have not yet seen, a whole new level of God's reaction to man's evil. Though God is determined to wipe mankind from the face of the earth, his favor towards Noah signals that this will not result in a complete annihilation. And so what we have here, even in the midst of his decree to destroy, grace, um, a provision to be saved from that destruction extended to anyone who would accept what God freely offers. So these verses here, they set things up for all that. In the previous chapter, Moses uh, provides um, in chapter 5 a genealogical record which runs from Adam through his son Seth down to Noah and his three sons. And as we begin now in chapter 6, we get the sense that the human population has increased substantially. And with that, of course, an increase in evil, quantitatively and qualitatively. Um, there's just lots more of it, and the wickedness itself is getting worse and worse. The first four verses are rather strange, maybe not to the original readers, but certainly to us, and we are left with two big questions. First, who are these sons of God that mated with the human women? And different answers to that have been proposed. And secondly, what exactly was this offspring from those unions? What or who are the Nephilim? these powerful beings who inspired legends. And again, different answers have been proposed. The traditional view, and you are familiar with this probably, it goes something like this. The sons of God, in verse 2, are generally understood to be angelic beings of some sort. And this is not without merit for the, terms, uh, uh, for the term sons of God, as we know, has been used of angels elsewhere in the Old Testament, both in the Psalms and in the book of Job. These beings then, um, as the theory goes, these fallen angels, 
lusted after human women, mated with them, and produced offspring. The offspring of these perverted unions, Nephilim, were powerful, um, if not superhuman type you know, beings or men. They were giants, half angel, half human. And they were the inspiration behind many legendary stories, mythological stories of the ancient world. And the reason for the great flood, which then follows in the rest of the chapter and, and beyond, is because these fallen angels have corrupted the human race. Mankind has become, has become polluted both morally and biologically. God needed to wipe them all out and start over. Not only has the human race become wicked, but its DNA has been altered. So as bizarre as all this sounds, it is pretty much the standard view. Um, it has been for centuries and enjoys support to this day, even from Bible scholars that all of us in this room would recognize and respect, not to mention that a number of the early church fathers held to this interpretation as well. And we can actually trace this interpretation back quite a ways. In fact, the account of angels leaving heaven to unite with human women was quite popular in Jewish tradition and Jewish literature before and during the time of Christ. References to this could be found in numerous apocryphal books like the Book of Jubilees and the, and the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch, in particular, elaborates on this, tells the whole story of how 200 angels left heaven, married um, human women, and brought evil and destruction into the world. They taught humans all sorts of detestable and wicked practices like witchcraft and sorcery and astrology, for instance. It all comes from that and how to perfect warfare using metal swords and even introduce the whole art of um, cosmetics uh, from war paint to women wearing makeup. Okay, it's all there in the book of Enoch. It goes on to explain that these marriages produced a race of giants, offspring, who were, again, half angel, half human, and that their souls upon their deaths became the demons and evil spirits that have possessed victims through the centuries. It's a strange book, the book of Enoch. I, I read it a while back. I had nightmares the night after I read it. Um, so a, a few years ago, um, archaeologists uh, stumbled into a, they found a cave, found um, some ancient artwork in that cave that predates uh, just a, shortly before the flood. And uh, some believe that these, that this artwork are to be art depictions of these Nephilim, and I thought it might be helpful to see what some of what they found. Um, we have this. Um, some similar characteristics here. <laughs> this is probably one of my favorites. And of course this, this has to be the all-time favorite here. So, all right, so the book of Enoch, of course, is not sacred scripture. Enoch did not write it. It was probably written two or 300 years before the birth of Christ, but it was a popular read in the first century, and even Jude appears to have quoted from it. It is possible that some of the material in the book, like the prophecy that Jude quotes, did originate with Enoch, and that this material had been passed along through the centuries. Someone then decided to add to it, embellish it, stamp Enoch's name on it, and turn it into a bestseller. 
So going back and trying to discern what came from Enoch himself, if anything, and what was made up later on would you know, be virtually impossible. The point is this particular take on Genesis 6 passage has enjoyed a long tradition in both Jewish and Christian circles. And some of this, if not all, um, uh, well, some of this, not all but some, is due to the influence of this apocryphal book known as the Book of Enoch. Upon a casual reading of Genesis 6, it is, however, an interpretation that one might naturally come to. Personally, I have not ruled it out, but there are some problems with it. First, Jesus pointed out that angels don't marry. They don't reproduce. And this would mean that somehow these angels, in their rebellion, were able to create for themselves human bodies so as to procreate. Now, we do have occasions in the Bible where angels appear in human form, but appearing in human form and being human, of course, are two different things. And here they are human sexually. They actually have the ability to procreate, to produce sperm that could successfully fertilize a human egg and produce a living being. And this may indeed be possible. Who can say what angels can do and cannot do? But it does add yet another you know, layer to the fantastical factor about all this. It just seems to be a lot to swallow. And based on this, I think we would want to explore other interpretations that are less bizarre. Now, regarding the offspring, the giants or Nephilim, well, there are problems here as well. If they are the offspring of these perverted unions and, and, and they were all destroyed in the flood, why do they reappear later on? Well, after the flood, and we see that in Numbers 13 and perhaps in 1 Samuel 17. Are we to conclude that all of this happened again, that angels yet a second time, you know, united with human women and produced giants? That now really seems to be quite a stretch. In fact, we might not even want to assume that the Nephilim were some sort of human, some sort of superhuman beings. The text doesn't really say that they were. We aren't even sure, you know, to what degree they were giants. Maybe they were just larger humans. But if they were, they may have simply possessed certain genes that resulted in great height and strength that is no longer found in our gene pool. Another problem with the traditional view has to do with the object of God's judgment and the reason for it. Why would the human race be wiped out because of the sin committed by angels? Nothing is said in this passage about angels sinning. Instead, the judgment in Genesis 6 is all about the humans. And it was not that the humans become corrupted biologically, a polluted DNA, but because of wickedness. Verse 5, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. And finally, we'd have to, quite frankly, quite frankly, wonder about the angel's motivation in all of this. The passage is quite clear about what drove these sons of God to mate with the daughters of men. It was because the daughters of men were beautiful. Remember that? It's difficult, really, to imagine that a whole horde of spirit beings who have no sexual functions or sexual desires would experience this physical attraction toward the physical beauty of human women, and so much so that they would all forsake their celestial glory, create for themselves human bodies, just so that they could have sex with these women. Again, it is possible, but it certainly stretches the limits of weirdness. 
So there are a number of hurdles here, a number of problems, and this is why others have looked at the passage carefully to see if there might be something else going on here, um, you know, a more reasonable explanation. And in fact, there are two other interpretations of Genesis 6, two other positions that have a lot going for them and should always be part of the discussion when this narrative comes up. So we'll take a quick look at those. One school of thought claims that the sons of God refer to those who are the descendants of Seth, those who belong to his godly bloodline, the faithful worshipers of God, we might say. In fact, the last verse in Genesis 4 could suggest, even mean, that the descendants of Cain, um, that the descendants of Seth, sorry, called themselves by the name of the Lord, that is, the sons of God. God's faithful people and Seth's bloodline were epitomized by such figures like Enoch and Methuselah and Noah. The daughters of men, then, would have been the rest of mankind, those who were not faithful to God, as exemplified by the descendants of Cain. Along this line, we should note that the chapter before this, chapter 5, is a record of Seth's lineage, not Cain's. And perhaps the reason they are characterized here as sons of God and daughters of men, instead of sons of Seth and daughters of Cain, is to highlight the uh, fact that these intermarriages were between the faithful and the unfaithful. And the children produced from these mixed marriages ended up, unfortunately, being part of the unfaithful, contributing to the advancement of this moral corruption of the human population. This view, what is called the Sethite view, is not however, without problems either, but it certainly fits into the context of Genesis much better, and it doesn't require us to import all sorts of strange and foreign ideas into the passage. However, it is hard to see why Nephilim, giants or not, would be the offspring of these marriages, why they would be powerful and legendary. That's a bit of an unanswered problem. Another position is that the sons of God refer to kings, nobles, members of royalty, um, perhaps even judges. And what is being, being described here would be something like aristocrat, aristocrat, aristocrats marrying, sorry, would be something like aristocrat, I can say the word, I'm getting my R turned around. I'll, I can do it. I'm a big boy. I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> what is being described here? would be something like aristocrats intermarrying with peasants, all right? <laughs> my days here are limited. I'm getting, I don't know, my brain can't, can't pronounce words. All right. In ancient literature, such rulers were referred to as sons of God or sons of a deity, and we would find something like this actually in Psalm 80, in, in, in the Psalms where judges, I think it's Psalm 82, where judges are called gods and sons of the Most High. The idea then, somewhat based on speculation, is that these kings took wives from among the common people, forcing them to join their harems. And in this, polygamy was probably an issue as well. The offspring of these kings and nobles would not be giants, but they could easily become, because of their royalty, powerful in the land. And the idea then is political power, not physical strength. And we actually find an example of that in Genesis 10, where Nimrod's political power is described by the same Hebrew word used here in Genesis 6. This position, what is often called the royalty view, is not without problems either. It is difficult to fathom why God would have judged human marriages that cross these class distinctions, social boundaries, as a demonstration of you know, human depravity or 
cause a rise in human depravity, unless, of course, the offense was polygamy or something along that line. So these are the three views. Um, uh, none of them is completely satisfying. If there are other views, I've not come across them. When it's all said and done, we just don't have enough information here to, good, to get a good handle on it. And as mentioned in previous sermons here on the Pentateuch, God tells us what we need to know and often leads questions of curiosity unanswered. So in the end, uh, all we can say about verse 6 with, you know, is, with, is that there are things about it that we know, things about it we think we know, and things about it that we simply don't know. Regardless, the consequence of humanity's corruption is that God is withholding a spirit uh, the result of this is that man's days will be 120 years. And the meaning of this statement has been debated as well. It sort of sounds like God is planning to reduce the lifespan of humans. As you know, before the flood, uh, you know, people were living in excess of 700 years. And so a lifespan of only 120 would be a considerable reduction. And th that could be the intention here. But um, as we know, most people then and now seldom make it past 90, so it's kind of odd to come up with the number 120. Another possibility is that the, 120, is that the 120 years refers to a grace period uh, before God would destroy the human race and start over. God, of course, is patient, forbearing. He postpones his judgment to allow for repentance. And so the 120 years span spans the time from these intermarriages to the time of the flood. So let's now turn our attention to the bigger picture, the takeaways here of this passage. As mentioned earlier in this series, when it comes to narratives, we'll want to always resist this urge to look for some moral to the story. You know, we want to ask, what's the purpose of this passage? Why is it here? It isn't a lesson on not letting your daughters mate with fallen angels or, or even members of royalty. Or if we were to take the Sethite view, the lesson isn't marrying only those who are faithful worshipers of God, although the Bible does teach that, but that's hardly the lesson here. Nor is it a lesson on how to raise children who might be born as a Nephilim, all right? So... Uh, let's think back to those three levels of a narrative's purpose. I forgot to remove those tr transitions. We have the story itself, events, and the details of those events. And then we have how that story fits into the larger story, the story of God raising up a covenant people who will bear his name. And this passage here in Genesis 6 is leading up to that. It describes the reason for the great flood, which itself will, pre will prepare the world for this chosen nation. And then we have the third level, how a narrative contributes to the even bigger story we call redemption history, God's master plan for the human race, including its creation, redemption, and eventually its glorification in the new heavens and new earth. God's decision to eliminate corruption, purify the earth of its evil, and start again with just the family of Noah fits into this larger plan here on the, on the third level. And part of the third level is seeing what a narrative tells us about God himself. Here, of course, we see that he hates sin and has a limit to how much he will tolerate it. We see that he is willing to judge the whole world because of it, eliminating the whole human race. If we were to ever think that God is soft on sin, this declaration here in verse 7, I will wipe, man I will wipe mankind whom I have created off the face of the earth, those words should certainly straighten us out on that. 
And along that line is promised to destroy the earth again, you know, the next time with fire. Should not be casually dismissed. We should not just, you know, pass that off. It will happen, and it will be bad when it happens. And the very notion of it should terrify us. The passage also shows us that God is willing to, um, to give those who repent a second chance. The story of the flood that follows is not just the story of God's wrath, but also of God's grace. Being rescued from inevitable destruction, salvation, is offered to anyone who will respond to his offer. Okay, so before we move on to the next one, any questions? <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right, whoops, we're not done yet. All right. <clears throat> This narrative here in Genesis 6 is placed right before the flood and introduces Noah as a righteous man who found favor with God. The next one we want to look at is found three chapters later in Genesis 9, so you can turn there, and it is placed right after the flood and shows Noah to be a drunken fool. And it too is a weird passage with many questions, and it's one that I've often wondered about, and so I was eager to kind of dig into this myself here in preparing for today. So let's begin by reading it, and we'll start with verse 18 of um, chapter 9. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Jepheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders, and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Jepheth. Let Jepheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so Noah's life lasted 950 years, then he died. All right, so if the passage in Genesis 6 is off the scale when it comes to the bizarre, or at least what is possibly bizarre, this one is off the scale when it comes to the creepy and icky. Um, <laughs> seeing the nakedness of one's father would be disturbing on many levels. And for that reason, this is, of course, not a popular passage for pastors to preach from. Um, the whole thing with Ham, whatever it was that he did, is a bit unsettling. So we will start with that, with Ham's offense. Upon a casual reading of the text, it's hard to see what he did that would invoke such wrath from his father. Noah, in a drunken stupor, strips off all his clothes, passes out naked inside his tent. Alcohol, after all, does loosen one's inhibitions, and he obviously has had too much of it. And there is some hint here that this may have been his first experience with wine. In some translations, verse 20 suggests that he began to be a farmer, starting with the vineyard, implying that perhaps he had, didn't know what he was doing, no previous experience with either vineyards or wine. If so, that might help explain why he was so plastered, uh, not being aware of its effects. But on this, we can't really say for sure. But there's something there in the translation that could suggest that. 
Whatever the case, he does at least have enough sense to not expose himself publicly. He is at least alone, and so no harm really comes from it. However, we should note that intoxication and sexual looseness are hallmarks of pagan living, and so here we are, ironically, right after the flood, after this great purification, where we find that man is just as foolish and self-indulgent as ever. Not much has really changed. Even Noah, someone noted as a righteous man in chapter 6, is now behaving a lot like the pagans who had just been destroyed. And, you know, on a side note here, it's another example of how the seed of every evil is resident in every human heart. We don't need to be tempted by the world. We don't need to even be tempted by the devil. Our own sinful nature is quite sufficient to cause us to stumble. So Noah's youngest son, Ham, for reasons unknown, goes into his tent and this may have been the beginning of the offense. The text doesn't say, but we do have to wonder why he felt compelled to do this, to violate his father's privacy. Bible commentators like to say that this, that this was an accidental encounter, but I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, after all, it's pretty much a universal rule around the whole world, don't walk into your parents' bedroom unannounced. I mean, that's one moral code that every civilization has adopted and agreed upon. And we all amen that rule, right? Amen. <laughs> Don't walk in unannounced. So perhaps there wasn't a legitimate reason. If so, the other brothers didn't seem to share that same concern. Nonetheless, he goes inside. He sees his dad passed out on the bed, and he's naked, and he tells his other two brothers what he saw. They, <clears throat> Shem and Jepheth, not Ham, discreetly go inside the tent to cover him up, careful not to get any glimpse of what their younger brother had seen. When Noah wakes up, he is furious with Ham and curses Ham's offspring, in particular, his youngest son, Canaan. But big questions here, of course, is why? What was Ham's offense? What did he do? And um, what was Noah so, why was Noah so angry with Ham? And the second question, or the big one, is why Ham's son Canaan is the object of Noah's curse rather than any of his other sons, or for that matter, Ham himself. Why should Canaan be punished? So Bible scholars have recognized the problems here, and different <clears throat> explanations have been proposed. So we'll start with Ham's offense. One very popular theory, and this is very popular, is that Ham took advantage of his father's drunken state to engage in some sort of homosexual encounter. And this theory has some merit for the phrase translated here as Saul naked is used in Leviticus 20 as a euphemism to speak of illegitimate sexual relations between siblings. But most of the time, the word Saul simply means that, to see something. And given that acts of sexual perversion are spoken of forthrightly in other parts of Genesis, we would not be so inclined to think that the language here is being softened. On top of that, and I think this is really compelling, it just stretches the bounds of reason to think that a son would ever desire a sexual relationship with his father. I mean, that would just be off the charts when it comes to unnatural perversions. So much so that it isn't even mentioned in those long lists of sexual provisions in Leviticus. And those lists cover everything. Some things are just so detestable that they don't need someone to tell you not to do it. Another theory 
similar is that Ham did not engage in anything physical, but took some voyeurist, voyeuristic pleasure in seeing his father naked. And this too is still very hard to imagine, but it does seem to be a bit more plausible. The problem, however, is verse 24, where we are told that Noah, after he woke up, learned that something had been done to him. This is something he learned. Something had been done to him. And so gazing upon his father with lustful thoughts doesn't seem to really fit that. Plus, it's hard to accept any kind of scenario where Ham would tell his father or anyone else about such private thoughts he may have had in that moment. Another theory, and this one is really quite popular, especially in Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition, is that Ham castrated his father. And this would explain why Noah only had three sons, which seems for that time to be excessively low, because everybody had lots and lots and lots of children. It also explains why Noah directed his, his curse toward Canaan. Since Ham prevented Noah from having a fourth son, Noah, in retaliation, decrees that Ham's fourth son, Canaan, and his descendants should be subservient to Shem and his descendants. So some of that makes sense, but some of it doesn't make sense. Regardless of how, just to speak frankly here, um, regardless of how drunk someone is, he is going to wake up if someone is trying to do that to him, okay? I just don't understand why this was such a common explanation in Jewish tradition. The most satisfying explanation is that Ham's offense was grave disrespect. Instead of honoring his father, he humiliated him. The prop, when you think about this, the proper course of action would have been to cover his father's nakedness as discreetly as possible and then just keep the matter to himself saying nothing about it to anyone. Rather, he left the tent with his father still exposed and then blabbed about it to his brothers. You'll never believe what I just saw. And in this, he actually magnified his father's shame. In fact, he may have even found some pleasure in telling his brothers about their father's disgraceful condition. None of this is hard to imagine. And we could easily see his brothers, Shem and Jepheth, saying, why are you telling us this? You should have done something. And irritated that he was ridiculing their father's indiscretion, told him, get out of the way, we'll take care of it. Now to us, uh, Noah's reaction may seem quite severe for something like this. After all, he, is, he himself is largely to blame for the whole incident. But on this, we must try to appreciate the gravity here of Ham's offense. It's something that would be would not be as um, a, a striking in our culture, unfortunately. In the ancient world, dishonoring one's parents was, re was really a serious matter, and it warranted the extreme penalty of death, and that was common among all the civilizations. And the Mosaic Law, which would come later on, reflected this sentiment in the Fifth Commandment. And this is because, you know, the, at least um, among the Hebrews, the crime is not just against God, the parent alone, but is viewed as contempt for God's high, hierarchical order in creation. Ham insulted his father. He took advantage of his vulnerability. The other question about this narrative has to do with Noah's reaction. Why would he curse Canaan, Ham's fourth son, who had nothing to do with any of this? And on this, we are largely left to speculation, but there are some clues. 
First, we should note that God had already blessed Ham back in verse 1. And so Noah can't really curse someone that God has specifically blessed. But he can punish Ham by inflicting some level of suffering on one of his sons. And Canaan, being the youngest, is probably his favorite son. Because the youngest son is always the favorite, right? I mean, it's certainly true in my family. You all know my brother Tom, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, you know... I'm the oldest, he's the youngest, he's the baby, he's the favorite, everybody dotes on him, and all the other siblings agree, and even Tom agrees, that my parents don't agree, but even Tom admits that this is how it is. How many of you, got the, the youngest son's the baby in the family, gets everything, right? We the favorite? Yeah, I, yeah, see, it's, it's, it's widespread. <laughs> Only because he's younger, it has nothing to do with his character. All right. So another thing here... <clears throat> Some of the tension in this passage can actually be resolved when we recognize that Noah's curse does not actually impose judgment. After all, he's not a wizard with magical powers. What we have here could be more like an, an invocation to the Lord, a, a, a fervent request, something similar to how we might pray, God, heal our brother Peter. You know, we are not commanding God, nor are we pronouncing him healed, but the language is stronger than, please do this. You know, it conveys a certain degree of conviction and seriousness. And the same with, cursed be Canaan, as in, may it be so. In fact, depending on the translation, it could even be considered more like a prophecy. Canaan will be cursed. Noah is simply declaring what he foresees. And perhaps God is speaking through Noah in this moment, whether he realizes it or not. One of the purposes of this passage is to provide insight into the reason Canaan's descendants, known as the Canaanites, were so wicked. To some degree, it goes back to this moment. What we often see is that a man's actions, especially his sins, are repeated by his offspring and even in the generations that follow. From Noah's son Shem, a righteous man, will come Abraham, the patriarch of God's chosen people, Israel. In contrast, Ham's son Canaan will become the patriarch of Israel's arch enemies, arch enemies. In fact, Noah may have already recognized certain character flaws in his grandson Canaan, flaws that were also could, be, could also be observed in Ham, and therefore anticipated godless behaviors and godless attitudes for generations to come. We can't say for sure, we can only speculate, but it's a reasonable explanation. Even if Noah's sons, Canaan be cursed, were more like an imprecatory request rather than a prophecy, it, we have to keep in mind that it was spoken against future generations of Canaanites who would suffer defeat and suppression, this because of their own transgressions. They were to be judged by God through the conquest because their sins were in the same pattern and mold as their ancestor, Ham. All right, finally... We see here that in these same verses, Noah prays, prophecies, however you see it, that descendants of Jepheth would live with the descendants of Shem on friendly terms. And this, of course, amounts to a blessing, peace with each other. And when it is all said and done, Noah's declaration here in verses 24 through 29 actually sets the foundation for Israel's foreign policy in the generations to come. All right, so again, if you wanted a moral to the story, well, the passage here could offer several. Don't drink wine. I'm sure this passage has been used to preach that. Or if you lay naked in bed, lock the door. That could be a moral of the story. 
If you see one of your parents naked, don't tell others about it. Um, if you have a fourth son, don't name him Canaan. You know, all sorts of lessons. But all of these, of course, would be missing the point of the passage, right? This is what we're trying to drill in. <laughs> the narrative here is yet another important piece of God's grand story, his master plan. From Noah's son, Shem, will come Abraham, the father of the Israelites, God's covenant people. And from Noah's grandson, Canaan, will come the Canaanites, the enemies of God's covenant people, who will one day be subdued by the Israelites, all of which are part of God's grand plan of bringing into the world its Savior and Redeemer. And in all of this, we can just marvel at how God can use even the failings of his people, even their sins, to bring about his ultimate purposes. So next week, we will continue with narratives from the Pentateuch. We have just one more example to look at, and, and it is also found here in the book of Genesis. Josh. If I had thought more carefully about the topic we'd be covering today, I might have asked someone else to close for me. Uh, Wendell, thank you for the, the obvious time and effort and research you put into that, that, uh, that message. And uh, I, I, I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say we appreciate um, the teachings in this church, appreciate Wendell's teachings and the fact that he is uh, not one to nitpick at scriptures, but he will tackle even the hardest and most awkward of, uh, of, of passages, which I think is increasingly valuable. We need to know the word. Um, I also just wanted to kind of reiterate what Wendell said there at the end, how, man, even in these bizarre, maybe difficult to understand, in these icky, creepy passages, as Wendell called them, you know, our thankfulness, our thankfulness should only grow for the you know, for the wisdom and the foresight of God's progressive revelation to us. Um, how these, these different stories, they all fit, they're all part of this great big narrative that leads to Jesus, and not only leads to Him, but also really pounds that point home for us of how much we need Him. And, um, you know, all, all these stories of, of man's shortcomings and and, and falling short of God's glory, it should really only drive us to a, a pronounced thankfulness uh, for the love that we've been shown despite those things and for the mercy and the grace that we've received. So, would you all stand with me? Let's talk about the grace of God's salvation in the book of Titus, chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Go in Christ's name. Greet one another.